you have a Bible, you can open to Luke 18 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 together, all about children, but also it's about me and you, because Jesus is going to use his teaching about children and their hearts and the gospel as a springboard to say something to us about how we have to enter the kingdom if we are going to be his children, if we're going to be his people. One of my favorite things about being a pastor is that I do get to pastor children. I get to shepherd children, your children. Um, I love pastoring children because, first of all, they are hilarious. Uh, I once heard a story about a Sunday school teacher who asked the class full of kids, said, are there any Bible verses that would help us in how we deal with our brothers and sisters at home? And the kid raised his hand and said, thou shalt not kill. So that's the sort of stuff you get out of kids on a regular basis when you get them around the Bible and you start talking to them. Um, I, I love children because they ask great questions. I, I once had a boy that, that was, uh, his mom had brought him in, he wanted to get baptized, and so we were talking to make sure that he was ready, and I said, do you have any questions about the Bible that you would want to ask me as we were kind of wrapping up? We talked about what baptism means and everything. I said, do you have any questions about the Bible you want to ask me? And he looked at me, he goes, well, if God didn't want Adam and Eve to sin, why did he put the tree in the garden? And I thought, you know, that's a great question. Uh, and, and so if you're going to ask kids to, to pepper you with whatever theological question might be on their mind, you better be ready for something uh, a, a little more in-depth than you might have prepared for. Um, the other thing I love about kids is church is not messy for them yet. Isn't that true about children? That sometimes as adults, we allow the politics of church, the, the happenings that, hap- that, that occur within the, the community of faith in a local church, we can allow those things to distract us, to make us feel a certain way about the people that are around us. Those things can cause us to grow bitter, uh, and, and kids just don't deal with a lot of that unless we adults bring it to them, right? Which is why we should be very careful about how we talk about church around our children. So this morning on the heels of teaching about the kingdom, teaching about how to prepare for the kingdom, teaching about how there's no room for self-righteousness in the kingdom, those are all things we've seen from Jesus in the last chapter and a half in the book of Luke. And this morning we have Jesus telling us that the kingdom belongs to little children, that the kingdom belongs to infants. And it's a passage that speaks to us about Jesus' character. Uh, I think that we have the opportunity to sort some things out theologically this morning, and I want to take that opportunity, and then it will squarely challenge us to examine our own hearts. So Luke 18, starting in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. First thing you see in this passage are parents bringing their infants to Jesus. The Greek word there uh, in the original language, it's one that was used for newborn babies. So these are very, very, very young children. And this was not out of the ordinary. People in uh, the community in first century Judaism, they would take their young children to the synagogue and they would want the rabbi of the synagogue to bless their child. Or sometimes they wouldn't do it in the synagogue. They would just go search out a very famous rabbi, a very famous teacher and bring the children 
children to that rabbi so the rabbi could bless them. And so that is what is happening here. Jesus has gained quite a following. He's got quite a status with the common people, and they want this phenomenal rabbi to bless their children. And as we'll see in a moment, some of the other rabbis may have been hesitant to bless their children because of their own theology. And so you have this rabbi who's welcoming kids in. They're all really flocking to him. The disciples see this happening, and they rebuke the parents. Uh, not, not a great look for the disciples here. Not their greatest moment, right? Uh, the word for rebuke is in the imperfect tense in the original language, which simply means they're persistently rebuking them. It's not like, hey, you should stop this, but it is stop this, stop this, stop this. What are you doing? You can't do this. They are persistently rebuking them. They are persistently agitated by what is going on. They are vigilantly trying to stop this train of parents uh, that are looking for blessings for their babies from Jesus. It seems like odd behavior because who doesn't love a baby? You know what I mean? Um, why would they respond like this? Well, uh, as I alluded to a moment ago, it's probably because they had subscribed to the Pharisaical view, the view of the Pharisees, the view of the rabbis and the synagogues about children. And that view was, hey, these kids can't do any good works to earn their salvation, so what real value do they have in the synagogue? Like, un until they get old enough to have some sort of sense of God is holy and I'm not, so I should try to do some good works to earn my salvation, which is the false system of salvation the Pharisees had set up in the synagogues. Um, that in, until they can perform some of those good works, there's really not a lot to talk about here. There's not a lot of work to do with these little babies, right? The, the, the ones who can't talk yet, they can't walk yet, they, they, they really can't do much except just, just sit there and look cute. And, and so uh, they looked at him and said, what value uh, do these infants really have? How is this a good use of our time? So the disciples grew up under that mindset. They grew up under that belief system. So it makes sense that they look at this and they go, this is a waste of the rabbi's time. This is a waste of Jesus' time. There's got to be more important work Jesus could be doing right now, so we're going to try to stop these parents. We're not going to let the master be bothered with kissing babies. But Jesus didn't see it this way. He did not see these children as an interruption to his teaching on the kingdom. He saw them as the perfect illustration for his teaching on the kingdom, and that is because of the character, of the heart of Jesus. It's the heart of Jesus that sees spiritual value in these children, which brings us to our first point this morning. The character of Christ welcomes little children into the kingdom. The character of Christ welcomes little children into the kingdom. The Gospels tell us how Jesus feels about kids. Earlier in Luke, he stood up a child next to him and used him as a teaching illustration. A very similar passage. It says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, uh, among you all is who is great. Matthew tells the, the, about the same moment in Matthew 18, but he records some additional words from Jesus about children, where he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones to, 
who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Do you think that Jesus cares about kids? Do you think that Jesus cares about children, that he would say something like this, that whoever would cause one of them to sin, that they're in so much trouble with him, they're in so much trouble with the authority of God, they would be better off having a giant rock tied to their neck and being thrown in a lake, okay? Um, You also see Jesus ministering to children throughout the study of Luke. In Luke 7, he healed a widow's son in Nain. In Luke 7, he healed a Gentile woman's demon-possessed child. In Luke 8, he resurrected Jairus' daughter. In Luke 9, he healed an epileptic boy who had an unclean spirit. And then additionally, in John chapter 4, there is a famous scene where Jesus heals the son of a Roman centurion. Jesus' ministry to children and his love for children and his words about children matches up with what we see in the Bible regarding children. You and I live in a culture of death. We live in a culture of death this morning, where, where death is imposed upon children while they're even still in the womb, often because the child in the womb is seen as a burden in some form or fashion. And when a society begins to look at the oldest in the society and the youngest in the society as burdens, it is a sign of the moral collapse of that society. I fear that is where America finds herself this morning. The Bible does not see the very old and the very young as burdens, but as blessings. The Bible sees children as a blessing. God's command from the start has included children. Genesis 1, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That is not be fruitful and multiply by growing crops, be fruitful and multiply by by having cattle and, and having them breed. No, it's be fruitful and multiply in the sense of have children together. God wants men and women, uh, husbands and wives to have children together. To fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The command to multiply is tied to God's blessing to the first people in the garden. If they're going to live in blessed obedience to God, then they will multiply. The idea continues as you read the Old Testament that children are tied to blessing. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5 Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You see how much the Old Testament and the Bible values children in some of the stories. Right? Like, like Sarah longing for a child in Genesis, or Hannah longing for a child in 1 Samuel, and they're in anguish over not having children, and God blesses them with children. But Jesus' ministry to children does not just align with the Scriptures, it aligns with His own character. Children are helpless in so many ways. Right? Especially those as small as the ones being brought to Jesus in this passage. We were talking, my wife and I, yesterday, uh, we went out for her birthday, and we were just kind of sitting around and hanging out uh, at a restaurant, and some 
pictures of our kids. You know, this is what happens as parents. You get away from your kids to have adult time, and then you just talk about your kids. So we're sitting there, we're going through some old pictures, and we're looking at old pictures of Millie. She's three now, but we're looking at pictures when she's one, when she's two. I was getting a little sad, a little weepy about it, because um, she's growing up. But when you look at her in these photos, outside of cuteness, she didn't bring a lot to the household. Do you know what I mean? And honestly, she still doesn't. Like, the boys, they're, they're helping out. They're helping to, uh, you know, keep things clean, and they do the dishes, and they've got their chores that they do. But she really, the only chore I can really get her to do at this point is if I'm done with something and say, can you go put this in the trash? She's like, okay, Daddy. And she runs, and she throws it in the trash, and she comes back. That's about it. That's the only thing she can do to contribute at this point. She's a taker. What can I say? right? She takes food, she takes money, she takes time, she takes, you know, pull-ups, like she takes and takes and takes. This is what little ones do, especially when they're just little babies. They're not physically strong. They can't feed themselves. They can't go to the bathroom without help. They can't walk on their own. They can't voice their concerns with words and sentences. They can't defend themselves. They, they can't clothe themselves. They really don't offer anything up in terms of contribution, the way that we tend to monetize contribution, right? The way we tend to think about it. They're helpless. And yet Jesus is filled with compassion for the helpless. So we know that Jesus is filled with compassion for little children, for infants, for babies. Jesus loves to pour out his love on the lowly. Joel Beakey says it this way, he says, The Holy Spirit empowered Christ's human nature to be a channel of God's mercy to us. Christ's human heart has a greater capacity for kindness than the hearts of all men and angels. Christ's humanity does not make him more merciful, but it makes him merciful in a way suited to our needs. He's not more merciful because God became a man. You can't add to God's mercy. He is as merciful now as he's always been, and he will always be that merciful. He's perfectly merciful, always has been, always will be, but he is merciful in a way suited to our needs because he has lived this life. Because he knows what it's like to walk upon this earth and has a greater capacity for kindness, Joel Beakey is saying in this, this awesome quote, a greater capacity for kindness than all the, the hearts of men and angels put together. In the incarnation, Christ became an infant. The God of the universe has lived through that stage of life where he was totally dependent on Mary, totally dependent upon his earthly father, Joseph. And as the high priest who has lived this human life, there's nobody more suited to care for children than Jesus. And there's nobody more able. And so it's the compassionate character of Christ that sees children welcomed into his kingdom. But what do we mean by that? So that takes us to our second point this morning. The theology of the Bible welcomes little children into the kingdom. And this is where I want to do some theological aerobics this morning, all right? I'm not going to call it heavy lifting, but it, it's a little bit of a workout. So a, a conundrum here in this passage. Jesus says the kingdom belongs to children like the ones being brought to him. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that the kingdom belongs to those who are like children? Is he saying we need a childlike faith to enter into the kingdom? Or is he making a bigger theological statement and saying that all children 
are a part of the kingdom. So I want to lay my cards on the table from the outset and say that I believe he's talking about the sort of faith we must have if we are to be in the kingdom. That's what this passage is about. Because of three words, for to such. Okay? Look in verse 16. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Meaning, to those who are like these children, that's who the kingdom belongs to. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I want to talk about that in just a moment. And yet, I think this passage provides an opportunity for us to address a theological point about children, and I don't want to pass it up because I don't know when we'll have the chance to talk about it again, so I'm like, Let, let's just do it now. So I don't often like to go down a rabbit trail, but we are just fully going down a rabbit trail this morning on purpose, all right? So here we go. The Bible does not idealize children. And what I mean by that is the Bible recognizes that your kids, cute as they are, right, surprising as they can be, as endearing as they are, is, is, with as much innocent excitement they use to attack the day every day, they are little sinners, okay? They, they are little spiritual rebels, and the Bible doesn't try to idealize children. It fully recognizes the state of their hearts. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Born in sin, born a sinner, Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so there, there's this whole argument that kind of goes on in, in the philosophical world. Are, are people born good? Are people born bad? Are people born morally neutral? The Bible takes its stand. Okay, they're, they're, you don't have to play a guessing game of the Bible. Where does the Bible land on that philosophical argument? The Bible makes it clear again and again and again that because of sin entering into the world in the garden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that that sin has spread to all men from Adam, and that now everyone is born a sinner. Everybody. We're not born morally neutral. We're not born morally good. We are born sinners. However, when we say that children are sinners... Are we saying that my Millie, okay, if I can just use her as an example, that my about-to-be three-year-old has a conscious resistance to the law of God and the will of God? Wouldn't that be a pretty big leap in logic? To say that my toddler understands that she is a sinner and that her sin hurts God and hurts other people, and she just doesn't care. She's just like, I'm living for the flesh, baby. I do not care. I don't care what mom and dad say. I do not care what the Lord saith in his word. I will live for sin. Is that what Millie's doing when she wakes up every day? Does a child of that age understand the concept of moral treason against their creator? And so this is where I think it's important for us to have, a, have um, space in our theology, room in our theology for what I will call an awareness of accountability. 
I'm not going to call it an age of accountability because I think that would indicate there is a set number that a child must reach before they're accountable for their sin. And I think that can be very, very different from child to child, from person to person. And as I'll speak to in a moment, there are some people who may never reach that spot. And so I'm not going to use the term age of accountability, but I will use the term awareness of accountability. Because at some point, a child becomes aware of the fact that they are personally accountable to God. That they live on the earth, there must be an earth maker, and they are personally accountable to that creator. That they have sinned against him. I, I think that they come to a point where the law of God and the gospel of God can do work in their hearts. And so the Bible helps us think through this. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. Listen to this. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. Do do you see that there? That, that the Scriptures talk about the children, the, that, that younger generation of Israel, at that point in time as having no knowledge of good or evil? How about 2 Samuel 12? David has committed that terrible shin, uh, sin with uh, Bathsheba, right? He, he has seen a woman that is not his wife. He desires that woman. He goes and commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, then tries to cover it up. Uh, by having her husband come home and lay with her. So then he can be like, oh, it's y'all's child. You know, it's not my child. And then the husband's like, no, I can't do that. I'm out here fighting on the front lines. I've got to stay with, with, you know, got to stay with the men. It wouldn't be right. And so then David just puts him out on the front lines so that he'll be killed. And then David gets confronted by Nathan the prophet about this sin. Remember, Nathan looks at him and says, you were that man, David. You were that man. And Nathan tells him God will forgive him, but he also tells him about the consequences of his sin. And one of the consequences of his sin is that the child born out of he and Bathsheba's adultery is going to die. And so David reacts by fasting and praying for his child for seven days. And listen to what the Bible says. It's one of the the saddest pieces of Scripture we have. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. They're, they're saying, you were mourning. You were, you were weeping. You were in sackcloth and ashes when he was alive. Now he's dead. Shouldn't you even more so be in sackcloth and ashes? Shouldn't you be mourning and weeping more? Why are you eating this food? David says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And listen to David's words. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. 
Do you hear what David is saying there? He's saying, I've got confidence that though my child was dead, and he will remain dead, I will see him again. He's definitely talking about more than death here. You don't rejoice simply in joining someone you love in death. You find comfort in the fact that you join them in paradise. You join them in glory. He's talking about joining his son in heaven one day. He's not, fa- he's not fasting. He's not weeping. He's not mourning because he knows that the child is with the Lord. That God would not send his son to hell. On the other hand, when David's rebellious son Absalom dies, David is beside himself. Absalom was an unrepentant murderer. He knows that he is not likely to see him again. So he tears his clothes and just lays down on the ground. It's a totally different reaction. There he is weeping. There he is mourning because he doesn't have the same confidence that he will see him again. I think we can also go to Romans 1 to come up with some some logical theological conclusions about children and others who will never have an awareness of accountability. Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what Paul is teaching there is that people can look out in the world, they can walk out in the world, they can look and see, okay, there is creation, God made this. This didn't come about by random chance that someone made this, someone designed this, and so they look at it and they go, there is a creator, and if there is a creator who is showing his divine attributes, his divine power in this way, then I am accountable to that creator for how I live my life. Maybe I will need to answer to that creator for what I do with my days and my minutes. But my question is this, they're without excuse because they can make that connection. Can my three-year-old look at creation, deduce that God exists, make sense of the moral bearing that has on her life, feel the weight of it upon her because she knows she will have to stand before him in judgment one day and then have to choose whether she is going to be rebellious or she is going to be obedient? Can she really make that deduction in her mind? Is she really without excuse? What about a child or a person who has special needs? And they're never going to be at a point where they can make that connection between God's existence and their own morality and their need for a Savior. Is that person really without excuse? What about the child in the womb that miscarries or the stillborn child? Is that person really without excuse? I would argue that If they cannot make the connection we see in Romans 1, then that leaves someone with an excuse. And what that means is we can appeal to the mercy of God that in His great wisdom, through the blood of Jesus, because no one enters the kingdom except by the blood of Christ, that in His great wisdom, that through the blood of Jesus, He is welcoming those people, those children who cannot make that connection in their minds do not have that awareness of accountability into his kingdom. And just in case you're like, man, where is he? Is he like off the, the, the plot this morning, as, as, as the Brits say? Has he lost the plot? Okay. 
I, I don't stand alone in this view. So here's John Calvin on the subject, fairly respected theologian. Those little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing. But when they are presented to him, he gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. To exclude from the grace of redemption those who are of that age would be too cruel. It is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom and to shut the door and exclude as strangers those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. Meaning, if the disciples are going, this is a waste of Jesus' time, don't bring these kids to Jesus, and Jesus is going, it's not a waste of my time, I want them. Then Calvin is saying, how can we have a theology that would take those very children and say, you are separated from Christ for eternity? It doesn't make sense. B.B. Warfield is a man who was known for ferociously defending the Scripture. In fact, if you were to say, give me one sentence, if you're in a church history class, one sentence on the life of B.B. Warfield, you would say he defended the Scriptures. That's what he did. That's what he was known for. Listen to Warfield. He says, And if death in infancy does depend on God's providence, it is assuredly God in His providence who selects this vast multitude to be made participants of His unconditional salvation. Warfield's argument is, if God would allow them to die in infancy, then surely he will save them in infancy by his mercy. That's what Warfield is saying. We would have to say that the character of God in Scripture stands with Warfield and Calvin. I would challenge anyone to show me a single Bible verse in reference to the character of God that would lead you to believe he sends little children or anyone with no awareness of their accountability to him to hell. To understand that, that God exists and they have sinned against Him. That they are responsible for their sin. That they will have to answer for it. They can't make that connection. Either because of their age, because of mental capacity, whatever. I would challenge you to show me anything in the Scriptures that would indicate that it is in the character of our Lord to send these people to hell. I'm not talking about people who have never heard the Gospel. I think that's a separate conversation. I'm talking about children and those of special needs who live under God's special and gracious loving protection until they reach a point where they can understand the sin problem in their lives, if they ever reach that point. I want to commend to you the book Safe in the Arms of God by John MacArthur. If this is something that you want to dive deeper on this morning, uh, I think it's the best book that's been written on the subject, and it's short. little blue book. It's got a red balloon on it. And... Um, I highly recommend that. But I wanted to take the opportunity to say these things today for three reasons. Number one, I want you to rejoice in the loving character of God as a Christian. He's fair and he is kind and he is compassionate. And he is those things toward children. And he is those things toward the helpless. He is those things toward those in the world that the world has forgotten. The world has cast aside. The world has said they're without value. He's tender and caring toward those. Secondly, I want you to have a defense for those who might seek to bring a charge against God. Certainly there were people who, who would launch accusatory missiles at heaven and say, your God sends little babies to hell. And we can respond and we could say, absolutely not. The logic of that doesn't square with the logic of this book. 
The theology in what in, in that accusation doesn't square with the theology of this book. We can hold up our Bibles and say, you won't find that God in here. And then lastly, pastorally, I know many of you have lost children before the time that they would have that awareness of accountability. Some of you lost those children and grandchildren through miscarriage. There may be people in the room this morning who had an abortion at some point in life. And they carry a lot of guilt about that. And they've often wondered what happened to that child's soul. There could be others here who have family members who have special needs and don't have that mental capacity to make those connections needed to believe the gospel. And maybe you have wondered what will happen to them on the day of judgment. And I want to be able to look at all of you as your pastor this morning and say, you do not have a reason to doubt the care of Christ for their souls. In fact, scripturally and theologically and logically, we can conclude the opposite. That just as he holds them in his bosom here in this passage, that he will do so for all of eternity. But, final point for the day. Back off the rabbit trail, back onto the main path here. Point three is the real crux of the text. Number three, childlike faith will see us welcomed into the kingdom. Childlike faith will see us welcomed into the kingdom. For the second time in Luke, Jesus is using children as an illustration to really teach the same point. The disciples don't want the parents to bring the infants to Jesus. They think this is bothersome to Jesus. Jesus actually wants them to know, hey, these children that you're trying to keep from coming to me, these children are an example of the humble faith that is needed to be a part of the kingdom of God. He said it in verse 16. He's reiterating it in verse 17. Here is the thing about children, especially infants. They have no merit to offer, no resume spiritually, no spiritual accomplishments, no good works they can point to to say, I deserve salvation, as if you could ever point to a good work and say you deserve salvation. They they have no spiritual achievement to hold up and say, this is mine. And as these parents place these children into Jesus' arms for a blessing, these children, they're completely at His mercy, right? Their only hope of a blessing is for Jesus to graciously pour it out on them. And in that, we see the posture that we all must have if we are going to enter into the kingdom. You can't come in like the Pharisee that we saw in the text last week. Remember him standing, chest puffed out, thinking, God, he's not like all these other people. I'm not like this idiot over here and this idiot over here. I'm not like that tax collector over there, this swindler, this reviler, this adulterer. Thank you that you made me like them. Thank you that you made me the sort of person who would tithe off of the spice rack and who would fast twice a week. Can't come like that. We must come like these children with nothing of our own to claim for righteousness. We must come like these children, completely and totally dependent upon Jesus for our spiritual blessing. There is a sense in which the New Testament doesn't speak well of a spirituality that reflects children, but that's because there's a difference between childishness and childlikeness. And we have to make that delineation this morning. Childishness is reprimanded by the New Testament writers and is attached to calls for change, for maturity. 
1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been studying 1 Corinthians. They were a mess. They didn't know how to deal with leaders. They didn't know how to deal with uh, issues of unity. They were all divided. They didn't know how to deal with sexual immorality in the church. They didn't know how to deal with marriage and singleness and divorce. They didn't know how to deal with Christian liberty and, and, and how there are some things that may not be sinful but are sinful in certain situations because it could cause somebody else to sin, somebody else to stumble. They didn't know how to deal with the Lord's Supper table. They didn't know how to deal with spiritual gifts. They were an absolute mess. And so as Paul is writing them, he's saying, you got to change. You can't stay spiritual children forever. You have to grow up. You have to move on from milk to meat at some point. Hebrews 5 is in the same vein. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Childish faith is marked by spiritual immaturity, a lack of knowledge in the Word of God, a lack of discernment because of that lack of knowledge when it comes to the Word of God. In Luke 18, Jesus is not encouraging childishness. Of course not. Instead, He's calling for childlikeness, a childlike faith. And here's why. Number one, it's because the faith of children is simple. It's a simple faith. The gospel is complex enough for us to wrestle with for all of eternity, and yet it's simple enough for a child to believe it and understand it. In our own family worship time this past week, we were talking about the Trinity. I, I would, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I was shaken a little bit because you're trying to explain the Trinity to these children. And so makes you a little bit, you're like, I'm going to make sure I get this right. And then as we explain it, they go, okay. And I was like, okay, you know, that's it. And they, they, the, the two boys looked at us, you know, Millie, again, she's, she's not at that awareness of accountability yet. She's pretty much playing with the couch cushions. But the other two, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was just struck again about how the theology of the gospel, even in the Trinity, it's simple enough, three and one, one and three, it's simple enough that a child can go, okay. And yet adults will spend our whole lives and then all of eternity just tracing the mystery of it, right? When children do believe the simplicity of the gospel and believe in it with a simple faith, it's a beautiful thing. It's not polluted by the pain of politics. It doesn't run down theological rabbit trails. It doesn't take second and third and fourth tier issues and and, and try to make them primary And when children come to Christ, they tend to just see their newfound faith purely in terms of obedience and disobedience. If I love them, I obey them. Childlike faith does not lose the forest for the trees. I love that. We need a childlike faith, a simple faith to enter into the kingdom. We need a sincere faith to enter into the kingdom. There's not a lot of grandstanding when children come to faith. They they don't do a bunch of stuff just to be seen. Their obedience tends to be very God-directed. Now, you might say, well, no, 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 no. They just perform those duties to please their mother and their father. 
Now, that's probably true to an extent, but let's not forget that the very first commandment in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment that, that is about how we deal with other people is what? Honor your mother and your father. And so in, even in obeying Jesus, that, that would bring joy to their parents, they're honoring God. They have a very sincere faith. And then uh, it's simple, it's sincere, and the faith of children is surrendered. They yield themselves to Christ. And I think it comes a little bit more natural for a kid. Because if you've grown up a little bit, especially if you're the boss where you work, or you're a supervisor where you work, there's people under you, you may have forgotten what it's like to constantly be in submission to everything. But children live their lives in submission to everything their teachers, their parents, their Sunday school teachers, the bus driver, right? Their coaches of their teams. Everywhere they go, there's people telling them what to do, and if they don't do it, they're going to get in trouble. And so I think it's very sensible in their minds to be surrendered to the authority of the Lord. But as we grow up, we can lose this. Are you jaded this morning? Has the church made you grow bitter and critical? Just dealing with church? That happens in the best of churches. Are you doing your good works to be seen by others this morning? If you're really being honest with yourself, to get likes on social media, to get an attaboy, are you doing it for the glory of God? Are you overly obsessed with theological subpoints this morning and you spend your time grinding axes for second and third and fourth tier issues while some of the more primary parts of your faith, like love your neighbors yourself, is drifting away? If you know the ins and outs of the five points of Calvinism, but you don't pray, you know your stance on the millennial kingdom in Revelation, but you don't ever seek to share your faith. You can perfectly summarize how the Bible was formed in the first 200 and 300 years of the church, but you don't read it every day. If any of this represents your spiritual state, then, then you need to repent today and recover your first love in a childlike way. You need to get back to where your faith began. Loving God, repenting of the sin that separates you from Him, trusting in Christ for everything in this life and the next. Simple, sincere, surrendered. I want to close this week by connecting with the passage that we saw last week. You see a childlike faith in that tax collector. The Pharisee was proud, but the tax collector, if you remembered in Luke 18, verse 13, he's standing far off. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beats on his breast, showing his emotion, his, his, his grief over his sin. It's childlike faith in verse 13, right? It's a simple prayer he offers up. God be merciful to me, a sinner, but it's sincere. It's surrendered. But in that Pharisee, we saw a man who had traded in the simplicity and the sincerity and, and the surrender for self-righteousness. Thought he was good enough to, to, to be on his own, doesn't need the Lord, doesn't need to turn to the Lord. So if you're listening to this this morning and you think you're going to work your way into the kingdom... You're not pursuing a childlike faith, and at this moment, the kingdom is not for you. You need to humble yourself. 
You must crucify your self-righteousness. You must declare it to be dead. And as you repent of your sin, you turn away from your sin, you put your trust in Christ, you'll be born again. You'll be a newborn child in Christ. And you can simply believe the truth and sincerely obey Him and surrender everything to Him. And then the kingdom will belong to you. By the grace of God, it will be yours. For to such belongs the kingdom. So the invitation to let little children come to Jesus is an invitation to anybody who would humbly receive the kingdom like a child. It's an invitation He extends to you today. Don't believe that you're too grown up for it. Repent and be born again, and then you truly will start to grow. Let's pray. Father, I pray we would have the sort of faith that we see in this passage. Simple, sincere, and surrendered. Childlike faith, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I pray, Father, that you would remind us every day to reject the sort of proud spirituality we see out of the Pharisee from the passage last week, and that we would be like the tax collector. He's the one that went home justified. For to such belong the kingdom of God. And Father, I also pray that today as we ran down one theological rabbit trail, took that opportunity, that it was a comfort to our people. If there are brothers and sisters who needed to hear their pastor say those words as he preached from this passage, I hope that was the case. I pray, Father, that, that those words landed, Lord, um, in a way where they do give strength, they do give comfort to those who still hurt. So Lord, be with us this morning as we respond to this message. Where we have been comforted, let us give you praise. Where we have been convicted, Lord, let us repent. Be honored, Lord, as we um, take the word and apply it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.